Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. And I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. Each episode, we bring on a guest or guests with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Glenn Peters, who is Research Director for the Climate Mitigation Group at the Center for International Climate Research, or CICERO, in Norway, as well as Linda Steg, Professor of Environmental Psychology at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Because the COP27 meeting just happened seven years after the Paris Agreement, we wanted to ask the question, is 1.5 Celsius still alive? A question that's now coming into the debate in the climate community. And so it was great to have on Glenn, who is an expert on the integrated assessment models, the scenarios that might be able to achieve 1.5 Celsius from a sort of physical emissions perspective. And Linda, who is an expert on the psychology of behavioral change and change that will help the environment. We framed it around that question, is 1.5 Celsius still alive? And while neither was quite willing to sign the death certificate, we did explore some of the serious challenges that are faced in limiting warming to 1.5 Celsius, the rapid reductions in emissions that we need to see soon, tomorrow, or yesterday, and the large-scale CDR, the large-scale carbon removal that we'll need to see by the end of the century. I think Pete really hit the right notes there in summarizing the conclusion. I think there's a consensus among the four people who spoke on this episode, uh, our two guests and the two hosts, that on the one hand, 1.5 degrees Celsius is not physically impossible, and the behavioral changes necessary to reach that are also likewise not entirely out of the imagination. But as the years go on and the limited carbon budget is being consumed with annual emissions, the amount of action necessary to reach a given goal, especially 1.5, gets smaller and approaches near impossibility. So while I remain on the relatively pessimistic side of the likelihood of 1.5 degrees Celsius, I think that our conversation with two guests here helped understand what's necessary and what's feasible and what's likely. Yeah, we concluded that even if 1.5 Celsius is very hard to achieve or near impossible, there's still hope that we can reduce emissions and that we can work to, to limit the impacts of climate change. So yeah, hopefully you'll all enjoy this. I thought it was a really interesting conversation and our first four-headed one. Thanks for listening. We welcome to Challenging Climate, Glenn Peters and Linda Stegg. Great to join you. Yes, thank you. Today, the central theme, at least of the first half or two-thirds of this conversation, will be the 1.5 degree warming goal, which has very much been in the climate change news the last month around the Conference of Parties, the 27th Conference of Parties in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. And I just want to start with a one-minute, maybe one-and-a-half-minute story about how we got here. Because the 1992 UN Framework Convention on Climate Change speaks of stabilizing greenhouse gas concentrations at a safe level, but it says nothing about what that level or the temperature specifically is. Around Copenhagen Conference of Parties in 2009, and then agreed upon in the following Conference of Parties, was the two-degree target, which had been bantered around policy conversations for quite some time. But that's just a conference of parties decision and a non-binding statement. And then in the Paris Agreement, a treaty in 2015, it has the statement with some wiggle room, as you'll hear. It says, 
The parties uh, are aiming to hold the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius and to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So I think of it as kind of a window. There's a zone to aim for, ideally toward the bottom, but recognizing that that's tough. And that bottom of the window is the 1.5. We're already at about 1.1, 1.2 degrees warming. Maybe there's some of that masked by lower atmospheric pollution. And this year, right before the COP, was the G20, the gathering of the world's 20th largest economies, where there was a statement reaffirming the 1.C goal. And that was echoed in the decision of the 27th COP in Sharm el-Sheikh just a week and a half ago. So let's start with Glenn. The title of a comment you wrote five years ago that said, can we really limit warming to well below two degrees Celsius? And you answered, yes, but only in a model. Yet here we are talking about 1.5 C five years later. Glenn, what's necessary physically to limit warming to 1.5 C? Well, the way you ask that question is hard to answer. What is necessary is sort of the impossible. So you can think about this two ways in the context of the scenarios that are generated and used in IPCC reports or in in a physical context. So if you think about it in terms of the scenarios, they have pretty dramatic reductions starting immediately, globally harmonized carbon prices, all regions, all sectors starting yesterday, basically. And then emissions go down dramatically, let's say 50% in the decade, net zero in 2050. Many have already heard these terms, large-scale carbon dioxide removal. So if you can meet those assumptions, then you could maybe get to 1.5 degrees. And I would say we're nowhere near meeting any of those assumptions. But you can also think about it in a physical context. You know, today we're maybe at, let's say, 1.2 degrees, depending on what estimate you want to use, um, what data set. So you could say, well, there's still some space to 1.5 degrees. How do you define 1.5 degrees? Is that never going over 1.5 degrees? Is that 1.5 degrees in the year 2,500? What probability you're talking about? How are you averaging? So we can get very nerdy in terms of scientists and come up with all sorts of abstract ways to keep 1.5 alive. But for practical purposes, we're going to shoot over 1.5 degrees. Then it becomes a question, can we recover from that and come back down to 1.5 degrees? So I guess a big part of that, there's obviously the change in the infrastructure that we have in the world, the things that we use that emit CO2. But I think particularly in the very ambitious scenarios that cut emissions rapidly and then rely less on CDR in the future, they have a large component of behavioral change because there's certain things like meat consumption that's quite hard to get rid of the emissions from. So Linda, what are some of the barriers to pro-environmental change on the individual and societal level? And what are the prospects for rapid change in this area? Yeah, well, rapid change, yeah. In theory, it's possible, but it needs change in many different respects. So our systems would also need to change. So you can't hold consumers only responsible for behavior change because the choices we make also depend on the choices that other actors make. So what industry or businesses are offering and what the quality uh, is of the products that they're offering and what policies are implemented by governments to enable sustainable change. So, And that's also one of the main uh, conclusions of the IPCC report, that system changes are needed, that we also uh, need to have different choice options available, 
and that we need to enable and facilitate behavior changes so that they become sufficiently attractive and feasible. There have been studies on what behavior change would be most important to help reach the one and a half degree goal. And that's indeed what you already said, animal-based products. We should dramatically reduce these because these are associated with major carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, I should say. And besides, we should use far more renewables. We should transport ourselves in far more sustainable ways. And homes should be better insulated so they need less energy. And these are all major changes that individuals can't possibly make on their own. So they sh- these should be facilitated as well. One thing that I've kind of been interested in, because I think the integrated assessment models include assumptions or trajectories of, of rapid changes in the, the systems around us. And whether that's feasible or not, we can get onto. But I guess I'm wondering, people often assume or, or suspect we can generate large societal changes in behavior quickly. And, and the, the rate of veganization is something I'm interested in. Like, are there places in the world where, you know, there has been sort of a state change? Can we extrapolate from places that are really rapidly changing personal behavioral choices to think about what the prospect for that kind of happening elsewhere and the limits to it? Yeah, a good example is what happened during the start of the COVID crisis. There you saw that dramatic behavior change could happen in no time, right? Everyone was working at home, uh, mobility uh, was reduced dramatically. It was short-lived, but because it was a crisis that was short-lived. And in the first instance, there were clear guidelines from governments, what should be done. The possible victims were supported right away. If you couldn't work uh, or your uh, the business was closed, you were supported in many countries by the government. And in the longer term, the dramatic crisis was less vivid and governments became more stringent in the regulations. There were a lot of compromises being made all the time. So the sense of urgency was reduced and then people were falling back to their own behavior. But what it did illustrate is that dramatic changes are possible. With your question regarding to meat consumption, what you see in many countries, that vegan or vegetarian for that matter, was very uncommon for a long time. And now you see the rates going up slowly still. But there have been studies that there can be tipping points. I think there's one study indicating that it could be 30% or so, when 30% of the population does it, then dramatic and fast changes can happen in no time. And that is also because at that point, it's likely that our systems are changed, that the offer is being improved, that the prices are more affordable to many people. So you get the economies of scale effects as well. And because it becomes more normal, because many people do so. And if you look in my own country in the Netherlands, if I, I now look at the supermarkets and you see how much vegan and vegetarian options are at offer, that is dramatically more than for a long time. And if you look in the bookstores, how many vegan and vegetarian cooking books are at offer, you see that change is happening. But this is oftentimes going slowly, 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 and then suddenly you reach a tipping point and then it can go rapidly. So on the behavioral front, the two sets of decisions that are often emphasized where consumers actually can have a significant impact with their choices are dietary choices and transportation. And Glenn, what I'd like to ask you is sort of an analogous question from looking at the top, whereas Linda's kind of looking from the bottom up at people and you're looking at the top in integrated assessment models, IAMs. And I'm wondering... Which sectors are the big low-hanging fruit that, yeah, 1.5 is tough, perhaps impossible, 
politically, not physically impossible. But where could we see substantial progress toward that? On the behavioral front or more broadly? No, I'm thinking about sectors. I mean, are there some innovations that are about to be adopted in construction, in buildings, in transportation, in non-CO2, greenhouse gases, et cetera, where we could really see something click? Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty hard question to answer in terms of scenarios. Of course, they have that sector detail, but it's not really or often the focus. And if you did look at the sector focus, you would say things like electrification, for example. And transport, it could go in different ways. It could go a biofuel pathway or an electrification pathway. The integrated assessment models are not necessarily that strong on the, let's say, food side, that consumption side. So I think you would broadly say that the integrated assessment models would cover uh, demand sort of continues to grow in line with population and economic activity and, and so on. There is some variation, but broadly speaking, and then the problem is solved on the technology side. So the supply side, you shift out your electricity generation or you shift out your transportation to a different drive chain or, or whatever. And you know the big ticket items will be things like coal and coal electricity generation and, and so on. Although just linking back to what Linda was saying with the behavioural change, just to draw in an example, which is Norway and electric cars, where you see that sort of similar pattern happening. And particularly, I think the effect of people seeing other people driving electric vehicles is quite important. Oh. It doesn't just stop in the middle of the street and, you know, I don't need an infinitely long electrical cable and, and so on. Although, so thinking top down, though, even though Norway has this really high penetration of electric vehicles, basically almost 100% of new car sales, private sales at least, are electric, yet only about 10% or something of the fleet is electric. So it takes a decade or two decades or, or some time to change over that fleet. So with some behavioural mechanisms, there's going to be quite slow decades. Others might be quicker. The COVID example, um, you know, that happened very quick, but then it was forgotten quite quickly. But then it does illustrate that you can, maybe with sustained pressure over a decade or something, implement policies which lead to sustained changes over time. I guess one technology I've wondered about, and maybe I'm wrong in this, I remember hearing that some of the fastest rates of decarbonisation that we've seen were the rollout of nuclear in the 60s and 70s in France, for example. How much is nuclear a part of these scenarios and what potential does it have if we were to move forward on that? So the nuclear really depends on the model. Some models like nuclear, some models don't like nuclear. So if I just to mention two models, GCAM and Message, for example, they both are quite friendly to nuclear. Let's say if you look at the Remind model, it doesn't think much of, of nuclear. Is Remind a German model? Yes. I have often wondered if there is a coincidence there, although I have asked them and they tell me, no, there is no coincidence there, but I don't know. And EASA, you know, the links to uh, the former Soviet and so on in Austria with the whole background of that institution, you could say, well, they have a long history of nuclear in their research activities. So you, you could say maybe there is some connections there, but I'd be speculating. But even in a model that uses quite a bit of nuclear, you know, it's still a little slice out of the big chunk. So it will help, it will make its contribution, but it's not going to dominate. And particularly models these days, the, the latest generation, there'll be even more emphasis on solar, wind, with nuclear helping a little bit along the way. But that's still quite dependent on technologies with carbon capture and storage as well. So that shouldn't be forgotten. 
And one issue with nuclear is also that it takes time to build. And we need to reduce carbon emissions pretty fast to reach one and a half degree target. So the question is whether nuclear is a solution in the short term. Yeah, you can think about that in, in many ways. We also need, you know, the solar and wind will also eventually need to be replaced. And so the nuclear that comes on today might help the solar and wind that would have been replaced in a decade or two or, or whatever. Either way, it just comes back to the point that, you know, we can't be dependent on a single technology. There needs to be a whole portfolio of technologies, also a whole portfolio of behavioural changes and probably other factors which make a contribution. And depending on the model you use or the way you look at the problem, you put more or less emphasis on different solutions. But at the end of the day, I think most will agree we need some sort of portfolio. I'd like to share a quote that I saw in the news last week from Laurence Tubiana who is one of the architects of the Paris Agreement. She's now the CEO of the European Climate Foundation. And by way of disclaimer, she's a member of the commission. We're on the executive secretary of the Climate Overshoot Commission. And she said in an interview, I believe it was AFP, on the 1.5 target. Yes, it's dead in the sense that we will most likely exceed this temperature level, unfortunately, what we call overshoot. But we know that every tenth of a degree counts So I'm in favor of keeping this target, even if we are not likely to reach it. If we exceed it, we will have to find a way to come back to it or below it one way or another by increasing carbon capture. If we give up on it, we will do less. And at first I thought, that's kind of contradictory to say that you want to keep a target that we cannot meet. But then a phrase came into my mind, which is useful fiction, that sometimes things that are not true that we know are not true, serve a function, especially in collective activities. And and Linda, I'd like to get your reaction to this quote, or really, it's not so much Professor Tubiana, I'm not picking on her, but this idea that there's a lot of figures in the climate change community who know at the very least we're going to pass 1.5 and hopefully come back to it, but we should still keep it as a target. How, How might that play out in a psychological behavioral sense? Uh, I see different different things coming into my mind. I think it's important to keep a target because if you leave it, you say, well, we're not going to make it anyway, then people might give up altogether, right? And then we will definitely not reach the target. So a target is something that you can aim for, but it should also give people the prospect that it can be achieved. Maybe not in 2050 or something that we really want. Maybe it takes longer and we have to deal with the overshoot, but making it clear that this is something to strive for. And the other thing that she mentioned, what you said in the quote, is that every small degree or tenth of a degree matters. And that is a very important message as well. And that was very well communicated in the one and a half degree report. There's major differences with limiting it to two degrees to one and a half degree. Major implications for human health, well-being, for whether we have coral reefs or that everything will be uh, gone altogether. So there are major differences, and I think that's very important to communicate, that whatever we do, every little step, every little contribution helps. But on the other side of that coin, if you will, in the other direction, on the one hand, you emphasized that even if staying within 1.5 is impossible, that maintaining that as a goal can be useful as a motivation. But it's, in my opinion, important to consider the other side. And that's when I've heard advice about, for example, personal improvement, exercise, weight loss, these sorts of things, to set 
moderate, reasonable, achievable goals. And I'm going to exercise five minutes on the first day and, you know, build up to half an hour or whatnot. Is there a risk that if too much political capital, too much rhetoric is built upon this 1.5, that's not going to be met and might very well be surpassed at least by a single year, somewhere around five years is what I've heard. There's a chance, certainly by 10, that that could likewise take the wind out of the sails and be a demotivating factor. It could be demotivating if people think there's no way out at all together, right? So we will never make it. But as soon as they understand that whatever they do counts and that it does make a difference, then it might still motivate them. So you should be careful that it is paralyzing people, that they think, oh, it's useless. Nothing can happen anyway. So leave it. We will be doomed. Or whether you still give a prospect, we can, well, maybe not one and a half degree now, but as close as possible towards it and provide them with a perspective of what they can do to help do this and communicate what others are doing to also secure that we can achieve that goal. That's also important so that you don't understand you're not on, on your own. But the downside is if you say, well, we're never going to keep that goal, right, to uh, achieve that goal, then it might be that people give up altogether. And then we definitely won't need it. There's a bit of a feature I've noticed in the climate discussion that it seems to always be five minutes to midnight. I mean, Glenn, you could have written the same article today that, you know, the prospects of tomorrow, this and this happening. We're seeing action on climate change. People are aware things are moving, but they're moving fairly slowly. If we fast forward eight years to the end of the first Paris climate goal settings, and we believe countries will follow through on the pledges they've made today, emissions are, have plateaued or risen slightly, I think, is sort of the estimate. We will have probably seen years that pass one and a half Celsius. When would we actually declare one and a half Celsius dead? Would it still be meaningful to talk about limiting warming to one and a half Celsius if temperatures have already gone past it and emissions are still at today's levels? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It links very much to the previous question or discussion. So, yeah, saying 1.5 is alive when we're, let's say, at 1.5 degrees. So you'll be able to go, you know, let's say in the next five years, I think the Met Office in the UK has an estimate that there's some 50% chance in one of those years we'll pop over 1.5 if there's an El Nino or something like that. And maybe if you take a, a smooth trend globally averaged, maybe, you know, 2030, we're at 1.5 degrees. But there'll be always some scientist that says, yeah, but we need to take a 30-year climatology. And so we can't really declare over 1.5 degrees until 2040 or 2050 or, or whenever. So there will be a group of people that will keep it alive. But I think the credibility of saying 1.5 degrees is still a good target will diminish over time. So this previous discussion, the question of keeping that 1.5 degree target, I think something that's going to be time limited. So I'd say within the next five or 10 years, the credibility of saying that's just going to slowly diminish. One thing I often like to say in the context of 1.5 degrees is we've missed the 1.5 degree bus, but it hasn't yet reached its target. So basically what I'm saying is that, you know, you, if you're running after the bus, you're not going to catch it. It's just gone. But then other people are saying, well, it's not at the destination. So at some stage, there's a tension there. And so we have to figure out, or at some stage, we're going to learn where that tension sort of breaks down and we have to start to think about the problem differently. Just on the, also the overshoot, if you think about, you know, in 2030 and 2040, when let's say we're over 1.5 degrees and temperatures are still going up and maybe we've done something on climate, but not enough. 
what will the people living in that generation think about overshoot? They may think about it very differently to what we think about it. So we think about, oh, no problem. You know, we'll just have all this carbon dioxide removal and, you know, we can keep it in the abstract in the distance. Whereas for someone living in that world, they may think differently. They'll have a different lived experience with climate impacts. They'll have a different sense of the feasibility of reducing emissions or carbon dioxide removal. So the meaning of that text will change. And actually, maybe if I throw in <laughs> one more thing, but the Paris Agreement, as we, you said right at the very start, is this well below two degrees, but it's sort of been transformed into this threshold of 1.5 degrees. So we need, I think, at some stage to come back to this language of well below two, pursuing 1.5. And actually, the exercise analogy, which is like the NDCs and raising ambition. So we sort of oversimplify Paris to it's a 1.5 degree threshold, where there's really a lot more meat in the Paris Agreement that we can draw on to help motivate action. On the topic of whether 1.5 will be abandoned, maybe not. It may just shift. I've been noticing an increasing frequency of advocacy for keeping 1.5 at the end of the century. So the 1.5 goal can live on, but implicitly in the meantime, there'll be overshoot. And the end of the century is captured in the Paris Agreement because that's when it says uh, by the second half of this century, when we'll reach net zero. And 2100 is often used as an endpoint for many climate runs. But I want to switch this back momentarily, at least to the psychology, something that has been on our minds, uh, the mind of Pete and myself. I think it's come up in at least two of our episodes, one with Britt Ray and one with Gaia Vince as a secondary topic. And this is around the question of climate communication and the question of how much climate communication should emphasize the worst case scenarios, how much alarmism can be helpful, even if it pushes the boundaries of scientific evidence, or maybe it's not an impossible impact, but it's sort of a tail risk. And on the one hand, I can see how that can be motivating. But on the other hand, Britt Ray's research is about climate anxiety. And I hear some startling figures about how young people see the future. And a significant share of them really think that human life might not exist on the planet in 50 years. And that's not in the cards with climate change. So, Linda, is there evidence, and if so, what about the motivating effect of emphasizing worst case scenarios? Yeah. Nice question. Yes, there is. On the one hand, people need to worry before they act, right? If there's no reason to worry, no reason to change your behavior, they're very unlikely to do so. So a certain level of anxiety, worry, whatever you label it, is motivating. But you should be careful with only presenting doom scenarios without providing any prospect how to avoid it. So if you only alarm people, they have no clue what to do about it, how to reduce the threats. Then they will paralyze, bury their head, be unhappy. Their well-being will decrease and they will also not act because they think it's useless. So it's important to also emphasize that there are things that they can do and that there are things that other actors are already doing to help reduce the threats. So it's more uh, of an finding an optimal balance of anxiety, worry. I have a question for both of you. If we extrapolate trends, whether we draw a line and say, well, this trend has been going in this direction, we'll draw a line into the future, 
or if we follow the shape of the curve, that the line is bending 1% per year and you can get a curve, you're extrapolating the rate of change. In both of those cases, whether it's emissions and behavior or whatnot, the transition broadly defined, it's happening, but it's not happening fast enough. So what I'd like to ask both of you is, it seems that an inflection point is necessary where the line doesn't just continue linearly. And the line doesn't even continue as a curve like an arc, but it needs a kink in the line, a sudden change in both aggregate emissions and a key part of that is consumer behavior. So I want to start with Glenn. Do we have reason to think that the future will be significantly different than the last couple of decades in terms of trajectories? And if so, why? Yeah. So if we think about, if we go back to pre-COVID, we were discussing a lot if we were getting close to peak emissions, because there were a few factors coming into play, which may suggest that physically we're getting close to peak emissions, you know, renewables growing and coal coming down in China and, and so on. We're now in 2022. We've had the COVID dip and the COVID rebound. Now we've got the invasion of Ukraine and, you know, emissions are still trending upwards. And I'm now thinking, you know, should we be thinking about peak emissions again? those mechanisms still in play or is something different or did we have it wrong? I don't have the complete answer there, but one way that, you know, when I talk about feasibility of 1.5 or 2 degrees, one thing I, I often do is split the developed and the developing countries. And in the developed countries, we see these nice trends. Coal is old and has been replaced by renewables and heading down. And in the developing world, we still have a lot of growth, need for development. Coal is still going ahead. And sometimes these countries are building a lot of solar and wind but that's just not enough to meet their needs. So coal and oil and gas still goes ahead. So when you think about it that way, thinking about whether emissions will be flat and whether there'll be an inflection, acceleration or something's quite hard to see because those, sort, those groups of countries are so different in their structure. So when I'm in my optimistic mode, <laughs> I think about these inflection points and there'll be accelerations and eventually, you know, we'll reach a certain penetration of renewables and a lower, low enough level of or a declining oil and the market will just collapse because who's going to invest in a declining market and these sorts of things. So that's what keeps me optimistic. But whether we will see it is something I'm very nervous about. So I'm actually a little bit more pessimistic now than I was in 2019, actually. And Linda? Do we have optimism for significant nonlinear changes in human behavior? You hinted at a reason for this a moment ago, and that's critical mass around some percentage of people adopting a behavior and then it catches on. How do you envision the possibility of sharp future changes? Yeah, it, it depends a lot on the extent to others are changing and whether the systems are changing as well, right? But what we do find in our research is that many people are concerned about climate change, do worry quite a lot, or willing to change their behavior as well, are not always able to do so. And what we also find, in contrast to what many assume, that acting pro-environmentally, acting on climate change might enhance people's well-being rather than only uh, reducing it. And that is because we don't merely get happy by having more stuff or consuming more. We get happy mostly by doing meaningful things and contributing to solving global problems like climate change is something that enhances our well-being. 
people do not always acknowledge this. So it's also important to communicate this better and let people experience change. Because what we also see is that oftentimes, initially, people are afraid of change. They emphasize the negative things that might happen. They overlook that positive things might happen as well. So by demonstrating it, by letting people experience it, by having trial projects demonstrating it, for example, people might experience, oh, something good is happening as well. And it's actually better than what I assumed before. And then linking it to the previous question that you said, should we emphasize the doom scenarios that everything will be horrible if climate change is happening? This might be needed in relation next to what some people do in the debates, emphasizing that if we act on climate change, we will have a horrible life. And they emphasize oftentimes either we do nothing and we live happy ever after, or we act on climate change and then we are not allowed to do anything anymore. We will be very much restricted and that will be a horrible life. But the latter picture is not true because doing something to help protect climate change will help enhance our well-being, not only because environmental quality is higher, but also because doing good makes us feel good. And doing nothing will have serious consequences. So these two scenarios should be linked more so that people get a perspective of the choices that we have. So to meet the one and a half Celsius goal, or at least to rapidly reduce our emissions and then limit warming below two Celsius, is going to require two things. I think we've mostly focused on the first, which is a rapid, sudden change in behavior, but also the way we build things. But on the other end, these scenarios, even today, depend on a promise that we expect the future to hold, that they will suck tens of billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere for several decades so that we can meet our temperature targets that we've set today. Glenn, what do you think the prospects of that materializing are? And what are some of the challenges to scaling up CDR to the scales that are assumed in these models? Yeah, I think that that scale is is unlikely. Um, And there's a few reasons for that. So One thing Jesse said right at the start is he thinks about Paris in terms of this window, the well below 2 degrees and 1.5 degrees. And a lot of the scenarios are actually just go into that window and then go a long way below it. Like they in 2100, they finish at 1.3 or 1.4 degrees. And when we're in 2030 or 2040 and we're over 1.5 degrees, we, we may not see that as the desirable pathway to follow. And, you know, we might be happy just to keep it at 1.5 degrees, for example. And this may have big implications for the amount of carbon dioxide removal needed. So basically, I'm sort of suggesting that in, you know, 20 years time, people's view of the world might be different in a way that we may not think we need so much carbon dioxide removal. And then I think thinking about it from today, looking forward, still a very expensive technology. If you look at a marginal cost abatement curve or something, it's right at the very end. It's the sort of last thing that you would do. And I think people and industry will work away at the easier stuff. It'll get harder, but they'll keep working away what they see as the easiest stuff at the time. And I think a lot of the extreme carbon dioxide removal will always be seen as something that's a little bit more expensive. You know, in addition, there's all these large scale impacts and whatever. But then, you know, a big uncertainty, maybe someone makes a big breakthrough and the technology becomes available and cheap. But I mean, you could make a big breakthrough in all sorts of areas of technology or behavioral change. And so it doesn't have to be just a breakthrough in carbon dioxide removal. So in a sense, I find it very hard to make a casual pathway that leads to a world where we have a lot of carbon dioxide removal. We'll have some, yes, but large scale, I find a little bit skeptical. Just one thing on this. Because I've been in the field since 2009, and CDR wasn't discussed at first, and then it sort of snuck into the scenarios. But I get the sense that in the past 
three or so years, I've really seen quite an explosion of apparent investment. Like a whole number of people I follow on Twitter have said, now I work for this venture capital company who's investing in ZDR. There seems to be quite an explosion and a development of some technologies that direct air capture stuff, which doesn't have some of the same consequences as the big scenario that, I mean, it's worth mentioning, the bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. The way it's realized in most of these integrated system models is bioenergy and carbon capture and storage, which has some huge consequences because you use vast amounts of land. But direct air capture seems to be advancing significantly. So what, what do you think, how have you seen those developments on the sort of money being spent, technology being developed side of CDR? And how hopeful are you about it in the sort of the near term of achieving some of those goals? Yeah, I sort of have the same impression as you that everyone seems to be getting into this, um, you know, of running, I'm quitting my academic job and I'm, I'm going to work for some CDR startup or something like that. Apologies to all my friends that are listening to this. I was going to tweet about this the other day as well. The inconsistency here is most scenarios are still dominated around this BEX, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage or forestry. So the direct air capture and those sort of, let's say, more fancy technologies have many advantages over the other ones. That's clear. But they also have some disadvantages. They're expensive. They require a lot of energy. So we're going to be busy enough building solar and wind and whatever else. And maybe we want to do some hydrogen. And so will we want to prioritize our building up of a new energy system to feed a, a direct air capture or a bunch of direct air capture facilities? So it's sort of I still struggle to see, you know, even if they crack a few nuts and get some technology development and get it down to $100 a tonne, I think it will still be quite a niche market. I still struggle to see rich people can go out and buy some credits and offset their flights to the Caribbean or, or whatever. But for the general population, 8 billion people as we have now, I think it's going to be quite a niche technology, although I'm happy to be proved wrong. It does seem that, I mean, if the venture capitalists are getting involved and in throwing a few hundred million at companies and projects now, to some extent, they're betting on countries following through on these promises that we will achieve very large-scale negative emissions, which... At $100 per tonne, if you're removing billions of dollars or billions of tonnes of carbon, that's hundreds of billions or even trillions of dollar market. Do you think that market will ever be created on that scale? I mean, would the world of 2080 be willing to drop a trillion dollars a year on CDR? Because that's what these models assume. Right. And would we even get to that stage? So we, we have this boom in carbon dioxide removal in these startups now. But one thing that I don't think is realized by enough people, certainly there are some people that know this very well, but let's say probably the people sitting on the money don't realize is having that scale of CDR is completely dependent on having emission reductions in the short term. So there is no scenario, there is no world where you continue emissions as long as, we're, as we are today, keep emissions flat, and then have so much CDR that you solve the problem. So I think there's this missing part of the conversation that this CDR doesn't make any sense unless emissions are going down. So if we reduce our emissions 50% by 2050, let's say, instead of going to net zero, so we're still heading then for like a two degree world or, or higher, will there be that demand for CDR? So there's only really that big demand for CDR if you get emissions close to zero, because we just can't scale it up, even with these magical technologies. So I think this is a big missing piece of the element. So if emissions were going down quite rapidly now and these venture capitalists were investing in CDR and direct air capture and so on, then maybe we could see a market in the future. But unless emissions are going down, that market doesn't really exist because it won't achieve much. Well, if you're at 20 billion tonnes a year, you can reduce emissions by 1 billion tonne much more cheaply than you can do that with carbon dioxide removal. So this is a really difficult communication point. Lynn brought up the relationship between emissions cuts and carbon dioxide removal. 
And at the highest level of organization, at least the, the way I think of climate action, there's actually four primary responses or approaches to reducing climate impacts. You can cut emissions. You can remove carbon dioxide from the air. Societies can adapt to a changing climate. And we might be able to artificially cool the planet, which is a rather outlandish idea, but it appears technically feasible. And a lot of my work, and Pete's work as well, thinks carefully about maybe we need to take this idea seriously and learn more just in case. Linda, you sent to me the text of an article that you just had published, a review, in fact, called, conveniently enough, it's called The Psychology of Climate Change, a very accurate title. And it's uh, just been put online recently, an annual review of psychology, not quite finalized. And hopefully we can put a link to that article in our show notes. And a passage jumped out at me about the relationship between adaptation and emissions cuts, where there's been some research. And you say, well, there's been some concern that attention to adaptation might weaken motivation for emissions cuts. But that doesn't seem to be the case. If anything, they work hand in hand because people see it as two means to the same path. And if we're going to motivate on A and motivate on B. And I'm wondering if you have any tentative observations or speculations about the way that carbon dioxide removal or what we call solar geoengineering might play out in that way because they're each slightly different, right? With CDR, we're thinking about future technologies that might or might not manifest. And with solar radiation modification or solar geoengineering, in some ways, it's too cheap and too effective. And maybe that has a particular temptation. I'm wondering how, how that might play out in a, in a sense of motivation and behavior. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that many people are not so happy with CDR. Solar radiation management is also very uncertain. There's a lot of ethical issues involved in it. And the reason why climate adaptation and mitigation are positively related, rather than if you think you can adapt, you no longer need to mitigate it, is because both are rooted in climate concern. So if you're concerned about climate change, you want to limit it as much as possible, but you also realize you need to adapt to it because it's already happening. And I would assume that similar things might happen with uh, whether people accept CDR type of solutions, for example, because people who are much concerned about climate change don't like these solutions that much because they also see more risks associated with it. So it might be particularly attractive to those people who don't care that much about the climate anyway. Well, if you are concerned about climate change, you think, yeah, we do need to do whatever we can to limit it in the first place. So our topic today was, is 1.5 Celsius still alive or is it now dead? But maybe we could slightly revise that. What's your best guess of where we'll be with climate change by 2030? Are we going to have rapidly cut emissions? Will they plateau? Will they be rising? What do you think? Uh, I think, well, we said it before, it's 5 to 12, or what one of my colleagues said is 1 to 12. We can still try to drastically uh, limit it, but then fast action is needed. And the recent outcomes are of the COP are not very encouraging in that respect, of course. But at the same time, I see a sense of urgency uh, in society among many actors. So consumers are concerned, industry businesses are concerned taking action. Yeah, but the question remains whether it's fast enough. Yeah, as Pete, you said at the start, the, the nationally determined contributions, the NDCs keep emissions more or less, let's say, flat out to 2030. So I think we'll do a little bit better than that, but not much better. So I'd like to say that emissions will be you know, a little bit lower in 2030 than they are today, which is not a very positive outcome. <laughs> 
But then I would hope that the changes that start to happen in the 2030s would start to accelerate some action in the later half of the century. So one way to think about the climate problem is when do we get to zero and what's temperature outcome of that? So do we get to zero in 2050 and then we're at like 1.5 degrees? Do we get to zero in 2075? It's like 1.75 degrees or zero in 2100 is like two degrees. And so really it becomes a question of how fast do we think we can get emissions down after the peak? So I think that's the fascinating question, but it will probably peak before 2030, I would hope. Our guests today have been Glenn Peters and Linda Stegg discussing the remaining feasibility utility of the 1.5 degree warming goal. Linda and Glenn, thank you for joining Challenging Climate. Thank you. Yes, thanks. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.